This class is part of the Lessons in Tanya project. More classes available at LessonsInTanya.com Funding for this class is provided by Benjamin Arieh and family in loving memory of Raphael, son of Chacham Rabbi Chia. Lessons in Tanya The Tanya of Rabbi Schneir Zalman of Liadi Taught by Rabbi Ben-Zion Krasniansky Tanya's text elucidated by Rabbi Yosef Weinberg The end of chapter 7, page 121 And he was explaining that the divine energy inside the klipa, the three klipot, the three impure klipot, cannot be elevated unless through a powerful teshuva, a level of teshuva which he calls teshuva mi'ava, teshuva which comes from love. And the reason why the teshuva is able to elevate the divine energy that's trapped in the klipa, in the shell, is because it's the, it's the darkness that actually caused the love, the yearning. Because the person was in such a dark place. And the person becomes so brokenhearted. Because he's so he severed his connection. And because he finds himself in a spiritual wasteland, in a spiritual desert. And he's thirsty and he's starving and he's yearning because he feels so devastated. It's the void, it's the darkness that actually breaks his heart and that actually stirs such a deep hunger and passion and yearning for godliness. So it's the darkness itself that leads, brings, brings the light. So it's not, it's not that the the darkness, like Shlomo Amela says, is the superiority of light over darkness. The darkness that comes out of light is much more superior than dark than light on its own. It's like that's what we see from the black of our eye. It's the light that comes out of the darkness. It's a, diff, it's a superior quality of light. It's a different level of light. It's like a laser light. It's focused. It's concentrated. It's a different level. It's not the same light. Without the darkness, you would never achieve that light. It's not only that the Baal reaches the same level of the Tzaddik. The Tzaddik loves God, and the Baal now also loves God. So who needed the darkness? He could have started out without the darkness, without the pain and the heartache and the brokenness and the alienation and distance. But it's actually, it's a different level of light. Not only that he appreciates the light more because now that he's had darkness, he appreciates the light more. It's a different, it's a qualitative different level of light. It's much more intense, much more focused, much more concentrated. It's a different level of light. And you can never achieve this light without that darkness, without that void. So the void, without the void, you can't achieve the darkness. So the void becomes part of the light. Without the void, you can't achieve that light, that level of light. So the void is, is an inseparable part of that light. You cannot get to that light without the void. So without the sin, without the negative, without the darkness, you would never achieve this light, you would never achieve this positive. It's a different level of positive. And therefore, the sin itself becomes transformed into mitzvah. Not only the person becomes transformed as a result, but the sin itself actually becomes a mitzvah. It becomes like an object of a mitzvah, it becomes a holy object. And this, by the way, you see the power of Teshuvah. Teshuvah has the power to reach into your past and change your past. I mean, whom are we kidding? How could you change something that you, that's part of your life? A behavior, an action. You can't take it back. You, you did it. You did something wrong. It's an objective fact. It's captured. It's real. How can you go back and change? And that's the power of the shuvah. The power of the shuvah, which is one of the things that was created before the creation of the world because it transcends time and space, is that a Jew has the power to reach back into time 
and to change the dynamic. You can't change what happened, but you can change the dynamic because anything negative that we've done continues to exert a negative energy in our life. Pulls us down. So yes, you can make up for it by atoning, by doing a lot of many good deeds, increasing, intensifying your good deeds. You can cover up on that negative event, that negative part of your life, but you can't make it disappear. It still exerts a negative energy in us and it still pulls us down, it drags us down. But the power of teshuva, the highest level of teshuva, teshuva out of love, transcends time and space. Because within the person itself, it shatters your consciousness, it shatters your whole being, it touches your whole essence. And therefore it transcends any sense of I, it transcends any sense of time and space. And therefore, it gives you that divine ability to reach into your past and to change the dynamics of what happened. You can't change the fact that what you've done but you can turn it around into a positive experience. Instead of being a drag on your life, now miraculously it becomes transformed and it becomes a positive experience. Not a negative. So the lower level of teshuva neutralizes the negative energy. It neutralizes. Puts it in its place. Neutralizes it. It doesn't have an effect on you anymore. You overwhelmed it with so much light and so much positive, you've neutralized it. But you haven't changed it. You haven't transformed it. The higher level of truva is not only you neutralize the negative, you actually change and transform the negative. The negative itself becomes a positive. And that's a miracle. That you can reach into your past and change the effects and change an event that happened in your past, transform it from negative into positive, that it actually exudes, it actually gives out positive energy. It's like you have a memory of your past, a negative, painful memory. but you have the power to reach into your past through teshuvah, through the deepest level of teshuvah. You have the power to reach into your past and instead of a negative, it actually becomes a positive. This is the divine miracle of teshuvah. It totally transforms you. It reaches to your core, it changes you, it touches you at the very core of that. So since it was the darkness that actually led to the teshuvah, so it's the negative that actually is an indispensable part of the teshuvah. You could never have come to the teshuvah without the darkness. Therefore, the darkness itself becomes an integral part of the teshuvah, of the positive. It becomes a mitzvah. The negative becomes a mitzvah. And now at the end of the chapter, he's going to discuss one exception. There's one sin, the sin that's known as onanism. The Bible, the Torah says that Eir and Onan died because they shed their, 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 their semen in vain. So, this is a sin of, you know, according to the Torah, the Torah frowns upon masturbation. The Torah frowns upon, um, despite pop psychology, the Torah takes 180 degree different approach. The Torah says, frowns upon um, masturbation or shedding your semen in vain. Um, according to the Torah, the only proper expression is in the context of marriage, in a relationship, husband and wife. And the Torah feels so strongly about it that the, in, the, in the book of Genesis, the Torah says that Judah's, Yehuda's older sons died because they were not careful about this. They shed their, their semen in vain. And uh, Maimonides speaks very strongly about this. I have a question. Yes. In a sexual relationship with your wife, when you're beyond the child's bearing age. Ah. So it doesn't matter. Every time husband and wife are together, firstly, they do give birth 
to they don't give birth to something physical says they give birth to something spiritual because everything positive in this world creates a positive energy every time husband and wife are together it's a sacred moment it's a holy moment God is present and it's something beautiful something very special so that's not in vain even though that's not in vain no just... no no on the contrary the reason why children are a result of sexual union is precisely because a sexual union is such a beautiful thing it's the most divine act it's the most profound act God is present it's because it's something so beautiful that it's making the world whole again at the atomic level it's a very core in essence the masculine energy the feminine energy merging and marrying and coming together as a result you have the miracle of creation so it's a beautiful thing. According to the Torah, sexuality is holy. Kiddushin. Kiddushin. The word for marriage is Kiddushin. Holiness. You know, in Western culture, we don't associate, in other cultures, you don't associate holiness with sexuality. Judaism is unique. Judaism calls marriage Kiddushin. Holiness. God is present. The Holy of Holies is the bedroom. And um, so every time husband and wife are together, when you create something holy, it gives birth. It does give birth to something, either something physical or something spiritual. Firstly, every time they're together, they strengthen their marriage, they strengthen their union. But they also give birth, as Zohar says, it gives birth to something spiritual. They give birth to a holy energy, positive energy. And that explains how you can be walking down the street on a regular day, you're uninspired, you feel nothing special, and suddenly you feel inspired. An inspiration just enters into your being and you feel uplifted and you feel motivated. You want to learn, you want to daven, you want to connect, you want to do a good deed. Where did this come from? Out of the blue. So the Zohar says that it's a result of a holy union because when husband and wife were together, they gave birth to a holy energy. And that holy energy is released into the atmosphere. And it lands anywhere and it could inspire a, a stranger. So it does give birth to something. Because everything that we do has an impact. And especially when you're dealing with sexuality and intimacy, which is so deep and so profound and affects us so deeply. So when husband and wife, wife come together in love and in holiness, it, it gives birth. It creates, it draws into this world, it gives birth to a holy energy fills the world with positive energy, wholesome energy, peaceful energy, loving energy, godly energy. And it, and it results. It has a result. It gives birth to a result. It inspires. could be a Jew at the other end of the world. It's suddenly inspired as a result. So it does, have, it does have a result. So it's not in vain. God forbid. But the Maimonides speaks very strongly about this. He says that um, this is the cause for most illness because it's the essence of the person. And actually quite amazing how society treats this most precious part of us as chicken soup, like water, like it's nothing. This is the jet fuel it fuels our imagination, our education, our self, our searching to understand ourselves and to understand life, our searching, search for meaning, for depth. This is, this, is, this is what fuels education. Especially the adolescent stage, when we become aware of ourselves for the first time, we become sexually mature and, and you know, our mind opens up and our, we become aware of ourselves. And that's really, the, that's really the time, the most precious time in our life when you want to understand yourself. You become aware, you want to understand yourself, you want to understand the meaning of life and why am I here and what's it all about and trying to make sense of it and trying to make sense of of the conflicts within and the different aspects within ourselves, the angel within us and the, and the, and the devil within us. And, the, and with, you know, the, we're torn and split and we have such high, noble, 
parts within us at the same time we have these ugly, dirty parts that we're embarrassed of, ashamed of, and we, we don't know how to deal with it. And, that, and that's really what education is. That, that's the search of people. This has fueled all the philosophers in life, and this has fueled all the poets in life, and this has fueled the search for meaning and the trying to understand the human spirit and trying to in-depth. And, you know, this is what gives a person a seriousness, a sense of seriousness about life. And a society that preaches uh, it's, this is the jet fuel that helps us soar out of the confines, out of the atmosphere. It helps us discover, you know, exciting things in life and make life so exciting and meaningful and something to look forward to. And when society takes this most precious jet fuel, society just turns on the faucet and says, "Oh, this is a cup of coke. It's nothing. Just indulge in every." Masturbation is wonderful. Indulge in every every uh, urge and instinct that you have, and really depriving you of the most precious thing that we have in our lives, and cheapening it and making it like nothing. It, it borders on criminality. If the schools want to teach sex education in the schools, they should teach. They should open up the book of Genesis and teach the story of Joseph. And there you'll learn what sex education is. And as a result of Joseph's test, withstanding his test, he became the king of Egypt. That was a direct result. Direct result. Because it nobilized him. It ennobled him. It, it helped him realize his potential. And he became the Joseph, the most successful human being in his day and age, the most accomplished human being, and the most righteous human being. One led to the other. It was his righteousness, and his strength of character, his courage, and his inner strength, his restraint, his ability to overcome his urges and his instincts that made him into Joseph, that made him the successful person that he did. Otherwise, he would have been a nobody. That's education. But when society teaches to the values totally lacks any appreciation for for what sexuality is and openly preaches and teaches yeah and it's wonderful and it just wastes you waste away the most precious thing that, that the gift that God gave us and that's why the Torah speaks so strongly about it the Torah feels so strongly about it it's not just a detail sexuality is not a detail it touches our very essence the very core of our beings, the most deepest part within us. That's the search, that's the restlessness we have in us. Sexual urge is the restlessness we have within us. This insatiable appetite and restlessness, and we're seeking, we're, we're dissatisfied. And it's that, that's what fuels our search for self, self-understanding, and our search for education, trying to understand ourselves, trying to understand what's going on. And when we devalue that, we're robbing our youth and ourselves of the greatest gift, of our, great, of our inner potential, our greatest potential. So the Torah speaks very strongly against seed in vain, um, masturbation, seed in vain, or onanism. And um, especially Hasidic philosophy explains when you realize that this is something that's unique to humans to uh, angels don't procreate there's no sexuality in, in heaven angels don't procreate it's a gift it only exists in this world it's the ability to become infinite to have children that will outlive us forever and ever a finite human being has the ability to participate in infinity, to become a partner with God in infinity. That we are descendant all the way from Adam, all the way from Abraham, the DNA, the seed, it's, 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 it's infinite. It's the same divine spark that continues on and on and on. And, and we're in awe of it. And when you realize the opportunity that we have in this world, the angels in heaven don't have it. 
or the soul in heaven doesn't have. That we have the opportunity, firstly, to become partners with God in creation, to become a partner and become infinite. And it's only in this world that we have the opportunity to do a mitzvah. We have the opportunity to touch God. In heaven, they don't know what God looks like. Because heaven is finite, heaven is limited. It's only in this world that we have God's essence is manifest in this world. Because only God has the power to create, and who did He give that power to? To us, in this physical world. So we have the opportunity. That's why when we do a mitzvah in this world, it touches God essence. We have the opportunity to connect, to make contact with the essence of God in ways that the soul in heaven could never possibly connect. And when you take a seed that had the potential to give birth, to bring a soul into this world, every drop of semen has the ability to bring a soul into this world. And when that's wasted and lost, we lost the opportunity to bring a soul into this world. And we deprive that soul of an opportunity to connect with the essence of God. So we're depriving and we're, we're wasting such potential, such great potential. And that's why the sexual act is so, such a holy act because the potential of that act has the potential build, to create a family, to build a child, to create a child, to, has the potential to create, has the potential to draw down a soul from heaven into this world and give that soul the opportunity to connect with the essence of that. And that potential was lost. Wasted potential. And what is impurity? Impurity is the result of a wasted potential. The greater the potential, when that potential is not realized, Nature abhors a vacuum. When that potential is not realized, it creates impurity. Tremendous amount of impurity. The greater the level of potential, the greater the amount of... When, when that potential is not realized, instead of bringing down holiness, it actually it brings down a tremendous level of impurity. It degrades and degenerates. And that's true with the sexual act. When sexuality is within the framework of husband and wife and marriage, then it's a holy act. And every time husband and wife are together, they strengthen the family, then it becomes part of eternity because it's not just living for the moment. It's a moment, but it's a moment that becomes part of an eternal moment. It's a moment that's connected to all previous moments and connected to all future moments. You're strengthening the family unit. You're strengthening something, an entity that will outlive you. You're strengthening something that, that's eternal. Every time husband and wife are together and they're in love and they express that love physically, that intimate, the fam- you feel it in the home. You walk into the home, you can feel that love. You can feel that warmth. You, the children feel it. It's a healthy marriage, a wholesome marriage. They're, they're strengthening that unit, which is an eternal unit. They're creating something that will outlive forever. But masturbation or when that moment just becomes living for the moment just a moment of pleasure a moment disconnected from any previous moment disconnected from any future moment it's just a meaningless moment then it's taking that opportunity that we had to connect with all previous and future moments that opportunity that we had to touch eternity instead we wasted that opportunity. Not only did we waste the seed, but we wasted that opportunity. And instead it just became a cheap, meaningless, nihilistic, empty, disconnected event. There's no connection to anything previous, no connection to anything future. In Judaism, as you defined holiness earlier, every moment is a moment, an opportunity to connect with the eternal. You don't just drink a glass of water, I'm hungry and I'm thirsty and I'm drinking. No. You make that moment, you stop, you think, you make a blessing, and you realize God is creating this glass of water. That's what's, that's, what, that's what's giving me the energy, the divine energy in the water. So that moment suddenly became an eternal moment. You lived in the moment, you paid attention, 
you're not absent-minded, you're paying attention, you're focused on the moment, you're drinking a glass of water, you're aware of what you're doing, and you're connecting with, you're turning that little act into an eternal act, into connecting it with eternity. And that's really what Yiddishkeit is. Yiddishkeit is giving the Jew the opportunity to take every aspect of our life and connect it with eternity. That's holiness. That's the definition of holiness. Everything is connected with Hashem. What's the antithesis of that? The antithesis of it is living, living for the moment. All there is is the moment. Nothing else. Momentary pleasure. Living for the moment. This gives me pleasure. It's impersonal. Is it connected with anyone else or another human being? No. Is it connected with anything? Past, present, future? Just enjoying the moment. Hedonism. What? Hedonism. Hedonism. Nihilism. That's all it is. Me, myself, and I. Ego. No rhyme, no reason, no purpose, no point. I am the point. Pleasure. Self-gratification. Instant gratification, self-gratification. That's all that matters. Nothing else matters. That's the antithesis of holiness. That's the epitome of impurity, of klippa. That's why he says that the, the energy in the semen, in the drops of semen, that was issued wastefully, although, he says, that the, the amount of negative energy that that act creates and brings into this world, just like when husband and wife are together in holiness, it gives birth to a holy energy which is let loose in the world and the world becomes a friendlier place and a holier place, this act alone has the ability to increase negative energy. You bring such negative energy into the world because it's the antithesis of holiness. It's the epitome of klipa, everything that klipa stands for, ego, self-centeredness, self-absorption. But at any point, without any rhyme, any reason, any purpose, any connection to anything. Just self-gratification as an end in itself. No reason, no justification, no point. So the, en- the amount of negative energy that it brings into this world is tremendous. More so than other sins. That's why Er and Onan, Yehuda's children, died. Because they, they were so holy, they were Yehuda's children, and because they sinned with a sin, they, they died a spiritual death, but in their life was immediately reflected that they physically died. Because the negative energy that we bring into this world through the act of a wasted emission is beyond description. So we've taken the holiest thing in life we've degraded it into nothing into the most empty emptiest act of all like an empty shell an empty shell there's nothing there but he says nevertheless nevertheless the Torah does not count this when the Torah lists the sins the forbidden the sexual sins incest and other sexual relations, illicit sexual relationships, the Torah does not count the sin of wasted emission. Because in a certain sense, it's different than all other sexual sins, immoral sins. And that is that it's easier to redeem and release the energy that was lost in that act. You don't need this level of teshuva. You don't need, although he said, that usually for the 365 prohibitions you need the highest level of teshuva, the level of teshuva which comes from love from God in order to transform the negative into a positive, in order to elevate that energy. He says this is the exception. Wasted emission, the sin of a wasted emission, as terrible as it is, in a certain sense, it's easier to elevate, it's easier to change and to transform. He says, if you read the Shema at night, that's one of the reasons we read the Shema at night before we go to bed, if you read the Shema at night with intent, with kavana, that alone is powerful enough to elevate that energy that was wasted, that energy that was degraded in, that, in the act of a wasted emission. And he says, the reason for that is precisely because there's no one in the receiving end. 
You're on your own. It's a wasted emission on your own. Since there's no one in the receiving end. In other words, you haven't affected really anyone outside of yourself. When a person has an immoral relationship, illicit relationship with another human being, it's not just you in the equation. There's another person in the equation. You've created facts on the ground, so to speak. You've done something together. You've created a reality. You can't, it's hard to retrieve that energy because that energy has left you. You've already communicated that energy. You've affected another person. Therefore, it's difficult to retrieve that energy. Then, therefore, you need the higher level of teshuva. Teshuva comes from love. But if all you're dealing with is sin of wasteful emission, which is really uh, an act that you do by yourself, since you haven't affected anyone else, anyone outside of you, objectively you haven't affected anyone, other than in the most subtle way, because obviously you're thinking about someone. So obviously in a spiritual sense, there is another person in the equation. You know, you're someone or something or some image of someone is exciting you. But since the fact is that there is no one else, just you alone, therefore you have the ability to extract that energy even without the intense level of Teshuvah. You don't need the most intense level of Teshuvah. That is what he's going to explain right here. Uh, middle of page 121. However, However, the vitality in the drops of semen that one issued wastefully, even though it has been degraded and incorporated in the three unclean clepo, can nevertheless ascend from there by means of true repentance and intense concentration and devotion during the recital of the Shema at bedtime, as is known from the teachings of our master Rabbi Isaac Luria of blessed memory. This is implied in the Talmudic saying, he who recites the Shema at bedtime is as if he held a double-edged sword, meaning one edge wherewith to slay the bodies of the extraneous forces, that have become garments for the vitality and the drops of semen, and another edge by which the vitality ascends from them, as is known to those familiar with esoteric wisdom. Therefore, the sin of a, a wasteful emission of semen is not mentioned in the Torah among the list of forbidden coercions, even though in one respect it is more heinous than they, and the individual sins greater with regard to enormity and abundance of the impurity and of the clepo, he begets and multiplies them to an exceedingly great extent through wasteful emission of semen, even more so than through forbidden coercion. When measured by the quantity of the clepo that, that sin creates, this sin is greater than the forbidden coercion. It is only that when measured qualitatively, this sin is different. For in the case of forbidden coercion, one contributes additional strength and vitality to a most unclean cleaver, from which he is powerless to raise up the vitality by means of ordinary repentance. Unless he repents with such great love that his willful wrongs are transformed into merit, since the sin of wasteful omission of semen can be rectified even without repentance out of love, the Torah does not include this sin with the related sins of forbidden coercion. Concerning this sin, all that is necessary to elevate the degraded vitality to holiness is proper repentance with true intent and devotion during the recitation of the bedtime Shema. In the note which follows, the author Rebbe explains why forbidden coercion requires greater repentance than wasteful omission. The reason is that through forbidden coercion, this vitality has been absorbed by the level of Yusuf in the female element of Klipa, which revives and absorbs the vitality from holiness, just as the physical semen is absorbed within, within the female in the case of these sins. Not so with wasteful emission of semen where there is no female element of Klipa. Only its power and forces guard the vitality of the semen as is known to those familiar with esoteric wisdom. So everything in the physical world is parallel with the spiritual world. So the fact that physically, when a person acts immorally, there's another person involved, there's a female involved. And uh, so too, it means there's, there's a person receiving 
receiving the semen, and there is so too spiritually. When a, when a Jew sins, and there's another person involved who has absorbed and received this negative energy, therefore it's much more difficult to extricate. It's much more difficult to remove, to retrieve that energy. Because that energy has been already expressed and received by a separate entity. Uh, on the other hand, if, if, if you're alone, and it's, it's wasted, wasted emission, just like there's no other person, there's no one really receiving it, so to also, physically there's no one receiving it, so to spiritually, the klipa hasn't yet, hasn't received it, hasn't absorbed it, hasn't received it, hasn't digested it yet. So it's still, it's still self-expression, it's still in its raw form, only in a spiritual sense. It has received it because obviously you're thinking about someone. So in a spiritual sense, it has received it. But since it hasn't yet been received and absorbed, therefore it's easy to it's easy to extricate. It's easy to remove this energy by saying the Shema with great intent before going to bed. Because when it's self-expression, it's it's still raw. You still haven't it hasn't been diffused yet. When someone receives what you're giving. It's limited, but on the other hand, the person has received it. When you're still expressing yourself and the other person hasn't received it, it's very powerful, it's very intense. But, but since it hasn't been received yet, therefore it's, not, um, it's, um, it's easy to, to retrieve and take back. So the sexual part within a person really touches the deepest part within us. The reason why we are sexual and the reason why we have sexual urges and the reason why we have these unsatiable appetites is precisely because at our very core, in our very essence, we are godly. We have something within us that's undefined. And therefore we're looking for something undefined. Nothing external, nothing physical, nothing egotistical can possibly satisfy us. Not money, not power, not fame. It simply won't satisfy us. That's not what we're looking for. We're still hungry. We're still searching. We're still restless. We're still dissatisfied. We don't know what we're, what we're looking for, but we're looking for something. And that's why we have all these urges. And that's why we have addictions. Animals don't suffer from addictions, and uh, neither do animals nor angels. Only a human being suffers from addictions precisely because the human being is superior to an animal and superior to an angel because we have a divine spark we have a consciousness so we have we have something of the divine within us something that's undefined and therefore we have this insatiable appetite and therefore when a person is hungry what are you really hungry for? you're really hungry for godliness you don't know it but that's what you're really hungry you think you're hungry for the food? you're not hungry for the food you're hungering for the godly experience. For something you can't put your finger on, something intangible. But when you don't know what you're looking for, you're frustrated. So it expresses itself in, in wanton sexuality, in, uh, which of course not only doesn't satisfy you, it actually empties you. It depletes you. It causes you to be depraved. It, it degrades you. It coarsens you. And the more you indulge, the hungrier you get. Because the further you're going away from, from what you're really looking for. So the, the amount of energy, negative energy that you're generating through the act of wasteful emission and totally uh, expressing that inner hunger in, in all the wrong directions the exact opposite direction of what you should be looking for. What you're really looking for. You just generate a tremendous amount of negative energy. So much so, in a certain sense, it's worse than all the other immoral sins. As an Aaron Onan who died, which is a reflection of the inner death that you experience, spiritual death and emptiness, a sense of nihilism, meaninglessness and frustration and anger and rage and nervousness and just and it depletes you physically as well not just spiritually 
Because when the act of sexuality is done in the proper way, in holiness, it's ennobling, it's elevating, it's wholesome, it's healthy. On all levels, physically and emotionally and psychologically and spiritually and divine, on all levels, it's just wholesome. Every fiber of your being, every bone in your body is touched and affected in the most positive way. If it's not done in the proper way, it becomes the most degrading, the most depleting. So it gen- and generates a tremendous amount of negative energy within ourselves and spiritually within the world. But since it's just self-expression, and we haven't affected, we haven't affected anyone outside of ourselves, therefore it's easy, it's easy to elevate. You can retrieve that energy, that negative energy, the moment you turn to Hashem, and you accept Hashem's unity, and you connect with Hashem, before you go to bed, and with intent, and with heartfelt, saying the Shema Yisrael, in a heartfelt way, you immediately are able to retrieve and turn around that negative energy, because you found what you're looking for, you're really, really searching to connect with Hashem, so it's easy to do once it's been received by an outside party you've created facts on the ground you've created objective facts and realities it's very difficult to retrieve and the only way to retrieve it is through the higher level of teshuva which is teshuva mi'ava and although what you've done is already done the deed is done but since it's the negative the darkness that has led to the light it's the negative that has led to the positive and without that darkness you would never have achieved this higher level of light, it's a different qualitative level of light. It's not the same light, only you appreciate it more. It's a different level of light. It's a deeper level within the light, which you only discover only because of your negative act, indeed, or thought, speech. Therefore, the negative itself is turned into positive. So then you can take your negative act, reach into your past, take the negative act, and transform the negative. The darkness itself becomes part of the positive. From the above explanation that the vitality of the forbidden coercions can be released through repentance out of, out of love, we will understand that which our sages say, which is a fault that cannot be rectified, having incestuous intercourse and giving birth to a bastard. The idea of a bastard, a bastard is a true victim, in the real sense of the word. It says God cries together with him. Because his whole being... We're talking about the Jewish definition of a bastard, not the American definition. The Jewish definition is a child of incestuous relationships, not out of wedlock relationship, of incest, or or a, mar- or a married woman, out of not out of wedlock, single. Mamzer, a mamzer, is only if it's a child of either eshetish. Or av av in bito, a forbidden relationship, not out of wedlock relationship. So, if it's a child of a forbidden relationship, adultery, or a brother and a sister, father and daughter, incest, that child is a true victim, due to no fault of his own. But there's nothing you can do. His very being, his very being is a result of sin. It's in his DNA, it's his core, it's his essence. And that's who he is. He is the result of a sinful act. And you can't change it. There's nothing you can do to change it. You can't, it's impossible. Why he could be the most noble human being in the world. Why is he being punished? He's not being punished. It's a consequence. It's a result what is the effect to him? He's not allowed to marry a Jewish... Uh, he's not allowed to marry a... can't marry a Jewish girl. Or a Jewish girl can't marry a Jewish boy. I'm saying he's the ultimate victim. He's tremendously affected. And God cries with him. Because there's nothing you can do. His being is a result of sin. His whole being is sin. Not that he sinned. He did nothing. But a moment of passion. His parents couldn't control themselves. And... Look at the result. They gave birth to a child. It's an objective fact. It's a reality. You can't change the reality. This child. Now, he could be a very noble human being. Talmud says a, a bastard, a mamzer, who's a Torah scholar, takes precedence of a high priest who's not a Torah scholar. He could be the noblest human being. 
But the fact is, you can't change the reality that he is the result of, he's born in sin. And therefore, his being is prohibited. What souls are brought down is a mamzer. Why that person? It's a very good question. It's a very good question. What, you, what, but it's, what, it's, soul it's what, what kind of soul would be drawn into the into a mamzer? Is it like a punishment? Is it? Uh, it's, yeah, it's like the ultimate. It's like the ultimate, ultimate, the ultimate victim. It's the ultimate. The child is innocent. There's nothing he can do. In that case, the Talmud says, there's nothing you can do. Tshuva doesn't help. <laughs> because it's not you. Because uh, the fact is there. The sin is in your face, reminding you of your sin. You can't reach into your past. Here we said you can reach into your past and through a tshuva of love, the higher level of tshuva, a tshuva with an intense yearning and passionate love for Hashem, which was caused through the sin. Therefore, since the sin is what brought you to this intense level of love, therefore, it changes the act and from negative into positive. Here, here it doesn't work. Because the mamzer is here, staring at your face. The mamzer is there. The sin, the result of your sin is right here. You can't undo it. So it doesn't help. Chuba doesn't help. What kind of soul came into him? I don't know. It's, it's like cripple. It's, uh, you so, didn't do it. It's already right. Right, it's right, right. It's a spiritual cripple. But the tr- cripple, maybe you can heal. You find the right doctor. When, uh, when medicine will advance enough, you'll be able to heal. But here you can't... It's not a question of healing. His being... The ultimate victim, innocent. It's a big Rahmanus. God cries with him because it's a big. It, he's what did he do? He didn't do anything wrong. Innocent child. His parents in the sin of passion, in the moment of passion, and they ruined him for the rest of his life. So truva doesn't help here, in the se- in the sense that what do you mean truva doesn't help? Truva helps for everything. Yeah, but who, who will do the truva here? Them on the no, I'm talking about the parents, the, the parents. The parents. Truva helps for everything. So we have to clarify what the Talmud means. The Talmud says Truva doesn't help. We know there's a law that stays that if a person gives a ring or gives a penny to, gives some money to his wife to be his fiance and says, Here, I'm marrying you on the condition that I am a complete tzaddik. But if she says, fine, I agree, but only in the condition that you're a complete tzaddik. It's, it's a good marriage. Or you have to doubt, maybe it's a good marriage. Even though he's a rusher, everyone knows he's a wicked person, he's a bum. So what kind of marriage is it? Obviously he doesn't meet the condition. Why? Because maybe he thought shuvah. He had a thought of the shuvah. We don't know. That's why it's only in doubt. We, we can't say for sure he's married. So we say legally it's in doubt. Maybe. Maybe the truth, and therefore he needs a divorce. Maybe. Maybe they're married. Maybe he needs a divorce. But what if we knew for sure that he did do truva? Truva helps in one split second. A bum, a low life, a good for nothing. Uh, one split second. It's possible that he did truva. And if he did truva, indeed he did truva. One split second. It's a good truva. It asks a question. What do you mean it's a good truth? We know in laws, in Shulchan Aruch, in the Code of Jewish Law, we know that you're not allowed to use a witness who's a sinner, who violated the prohibition, which, is, which receives lashes. If someone, a Jew, violates such a prohibition, or if someone steals money, he's not a kosher witness. He's a rasha. He's called a rasha. The Torah calls him a wicked person. He's not a kosher witness. It's not worth... His testimony is worthless. But there's a way a person could do tshuva. doesn't mean a person sinned once, he's forever off the books, off the, the roster of witnesses. He can do tshuva. How does he do tshuva? There's a whole process. Let's say he was a butcher who was caught selling, it was a little before Yom Tov, there wasn't enough meat, he went to the back, got from his neighbor a whole bunch of non-kosher food, and they caught him red-handed selling non-kosher food. That's it. Who's going to trust him forever again? But he could do tshuva. He goes to a different town. And he was tempted to sin once again. And instead he threw out the non-kosher food and he lost a lot of money. If he proves, if we can prove that he genuinely had a change of heart, then he's restated. 
back and he's back into his, we assume once again that he's a kosher Jew and he's, he's okay. So it doesn't help for a person to, to, to think truva for a moment. You have to prove that he did truva. You have to, if he stole money, you can ask the question. A person steals money. What does it help to think to, to think to shuva? It doesn't help. You have to return the money. <laughs> so what's the Talmud saying? If he says you're married to me, and she says on the condition that you're a tzaddik, a complete tzaddik, it's a good marriage if he did shuva. Because maybe he thought shuva. What do you mean? Maybe he thought shuva. He has to return the money. One of the sins that he did was he's a ganav. What does it help if he did shuva? He never returned the money. Therefore, he didn't, he didn't rectify his misdeed. So, so it's definitely not married. Yet the Talmud says, no, if he thought true, it's a good marriage. So we have to differentiate. And obviously, we have to differentiate these two parts of the shuvah. There's one part of the shuvah which is regarding the person himself. When a person sins, basically a Jew, a Jew is throwing off the yoke of heaven. Instead of being a loyal soldier to God, a loyal servant and soldier, an obedient soldier that we receive our orders, take our orders directly from God and willingly accept His commands. His wishes are our command. Instead, you throw off the yoke of heaven. I answer to no one. I answer to myself. I play God. So when a Jew sins, he has disconnected himself. He's a deserter. What is the shuvah? Teshuvah is, I turn to God, I say, I'm sorry. I want, to, I want to re-enlist. I want to be a soldier again. I want to connect with you. I want to, you're my king. You're my sovereign. You're my master. You're my God. You, can, you, can, you, can, you have a right to tell me what to do, and, I've, and I'm obligated to obey. And I want to do it willingly and lovingly. That's the essence of Teshuvah. Then there's another part of Teshuvah. The facts you've created on the ground. You've messed up. You've created scars in your own soul. You've created scars in the universe. You've created scars. You've hurt other people. You've done damage. You've ripped the fabric of life, the fabric of your own soul, the fabric of other people's soul, the fabric of God's beautiful world. You have a lot of mending to do. You need a kapara. Kapara comes from the word to clean, to cleanse, to wipe away all the negative, negative energy, all the negative scars that you've created in this world. You've stolen money, you've emptied out someone's pocket, you have to fill back his pocket. You have to create, you have to fill that hole. It's not enough that in your heart, now you've had 180 degrees to turn around instead of being hard-hearted and coarse, now you're soft and you're vulnerable and you're human and you're humane and you, re- you, you restored your humanity and you're not enough. You've emptied someone's pocket, you have to fill that pocket. And until you fill that pocket, you haven't rectified the hole that you've created in this world. So it's two separate parts. One is regarding the person himself, personal, subjective. The other one is objective. The effect that the person has outside of himself. And that's what the Talmud is talking about. The Talmud says that a person does the shuva, and in one moment a person could become a tzaddik governor. He can become a complete tzaddik. The condition was, he says, I agree if you become a tzaddik, if you're a tzaddik. A tzaddik is a term that defines the person, that the person is righteous, that the person is once again a soldier of God. He's part of God's army. He's, he's inside. He's part of the inner group. He's connected. So the moment he does truva, he thinks for a moment, even if he stole money, and he hasn't yet rectified the damage that he has done to the outside world. But for he himself... You can call him a complete tzaddik. But of course he hasn't yet rectified the world outside. It's just the beginning. You have to return the money and you have to make up and cleanse away all the negative energy that you've created as a result, as a consequence of your actions. And that's why the Gemara explains, says, that who's, as we just learned, the sin that you can't fix is a mamas says that a mom's a, a child has to respect honor his parents it's in, te, in the Ten Commandments what if your parents are sinners you have to respect 
the opinion that says, no, you don't have to respect. Your mother says that a mamzer, but a mamzer has to respect his parents. Mother says, how can you say a mamzer has to respect his parents? A bastard has to respect his parents. His parents were the big ultimate sinners. <laughs> they did the ultimate sin, the sin that, that no repentance helps. Why should the child respect his parents? Let alone the fact that the parents ruined them for life. Why should he respect? Thomas says, we're talking about when the parents did Teshuvah. The parents repented. And now they're, they're doing, they are, they are behaving as Jews. So when the parents repented, when they conceived of the child, when they had the child, they were sinners. Maybe now they repented. In the case when they repented, then the child is obligated to be true. So the same question. What do you mean they repented? How could they repent? When we just said that this is the one sin that you can't repent, repentance doesn't help. Because the fact on the ground is here, is staring them in the face. You can't undo this reality. You can't pretend that it's not here. It's here. So obviously you see that there's two, two different parts. There's one part of the shuva which affects the person himself. And that's the criteria for honoring your parents. The fact that your parents are righteous. The fact that they're humble. And they are connected with Hashem. And they accept upon themselves Hashem's sovereignty. And they are duty-bound to follow Hashem. And they once again re-enlist in God's army. They were deserters, but now they re-enlist. God accepts them back and, of course, welcomes them back with open arms. So they have to respect them. But regarding the effect that you have in the world, the objective reality that you've created, that there's nothing you can do. The fact is there. You can't help. You can't undo the damage consequences there. The very being of the child is a statement, is a result, is a consequence of the sin. It's an objective reality. His whole being is sin. Nothing you can do to change. And continue. But then once the bastard is born, though the sinner undertakes with great repentance, says repentance of great love, he cannot cause the vitality to ascend and to sanctify, since it has already descended into this world and has been clothed by the body of flesh and blood. Even repentance of great love cannot rectify this. Still, it is explained elsewhere that if the repentance is powerful enough, it can actually affect the death of the bastard. And once it ceases to be a body of flesh and blood, its vitality can ascend to holiness. On the other hand, we know that there's nothing in the world that tshuva cannot help. Tshuva is the cure, the medicine for any, any sin, any, such, any situation, no matter how negative, no matter how dire, no matter how alienated, how distant. How deep the darkness, there is a level of teshuvah, an antidote to that, to that darkness. See, even when he says that teshuvah does not help for this sin, he doesn't mean it's impossible. How can teshuvah not help? He means a regular level of teshuvah. Even the, what we consider the highest level of teshuvah, the teshuvah of love. But if a person has an unusual, an extraordinary, unusual level of the shuva, then that shuva could even erase and reach in the past and even erase even even such a sin. And there are stories of a Jewish person who's actually intermarried. A whole long story, he met this Jew, and Hasidic Jew, and he was so taken. Rabbi Yosef the Balagoli was so taken. And he was so hurt and so brokenhearted that he's become so alienated from his own Yiddishkeit. And he ran away and he, was, he ran away from his wife. He left his wife, his Jewish wife, behind. And um, he was so taken that he just couldn't, couldn't live with himself. And he became deathly ill. And he heat. He was, he was heating up and his whole body was heating up and he couldn't, he couldn't cure him. He was like so shaken. And... He did such a profound level of teshuva that shook him to his very core and his very essence, the very essence of his consciousness, that he was, he was able to erase that whole part of his life, that the non-Jewish children and the whole result of his actions and his deeds, it was an unfortunate accident, and his wife and children were... were or gone as a result of that accident. So, any effect that he had in this world, any any effect 
lasting effect that he had in this world, this objective reality that he created in this world, he was able to reach like in his past and he was able to undo that whole reality, to physically undo that whole reality. And he went back to his wife, his Jewish wife and family. And uh, But this is an unusual level of teshuva, highly unusual level of teshuva. Now, is that justice? I mean, let's say it was a uh, Jewish mobster. No, this part, this particular story that he's referring to here is actually was actually that was the case. It wasn't wasn't a mamzer. It was a case of a of a non-Jewish. He left his Jewish wife and kids behind, and he went to and he married. Uh, he became very, you know he married the landowner's daughter, and, um, and he had he had two children with him. Um, you know. The very life of the mamzer is, 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 is injustice. You know, his whole life is, is, is a tragedy. His whole being is a tragedy. His whole life is a tragedy. He's a walking, waking, living reminder of, of, of the sin of his parents. Um, but again, it's not know. his fault. He's innocent. No, he, he is innocent. I, you know, I don't know of any case where it was a case of a mamzer that anything happened to the mamzer, um, as the Talmud says, a mamzer, a Torah scholar, takes precedence over the high priest who enters into the Holy of Holies in Yom Kippur. You know, he could be the holiest Jew. He could be the holiest person, the most noble, the most refined. And the truth is, anyone, anyone, any soul that has to live with his type of challenge, you know, it's enough to break your heart either makes you the most refined person in the world because really all you have is really Hashem and uh, or the opposite effect Jay was a mamzer Yashka Pendrik was a mamzer there was no virgin birth he was the bastard and he was very arrogant and very chutzvedic as a result and look at the results so it could be very negative you know, uh, someone comes as a result of such a ho- unholy union. It's not a very. He was an incestuous. Yeah, his, incestuous. his mother was betrothed. By Jewish law, it's considered marriage. And then uh, it's a whole story, how how it happened. It's a whole long story. She may she may have been seduced into it without even without even you know. We have this she may have been a little line. innocent. There is a story. I don't know how reliable it is. We have a tradition there that she and that um, he was a result of a, of, of uh, yeah. He, she was a married woman. She was a married woman. See, so he he's a bastard. That's one of the signs, you know, being very chutzpah. or can end up being a very holy person, a very spiritual person. So I don't know of any story. The story he's referring to here in the bottom is, is not about it's not about a bastard. It's actually about children children from a, from an un-Jewish uh, marriage. It's it's just the power of teshuvah. The power of teshuvah so profound because anything that happens in the world is just a reflection of what's happening inside of us. When we shake ourselves to our very core and essence, our very consciousness, like we're radically stirred up it transcends time and space you know you lose any sense of ego of I your whole being is shattered your whole structure is so broken hearted it's so broken it's like when when Moshe threw down the luchot threw down the tablets the Jews became shattered they shattered into a thousand pieces the Jewish heart became shattered into a thousand pieces so when your heart is shattered into a thousand pieces it, it it reflected in the outside world it has a tremendous effect and impact on the outside world you're able to reach into your past you're able to change your past you're able to transform negative into positive you're able to transcend time and space he says when you reach a level of teshuvah like, like the story of that he's referring to here on the bottom of the note which was such a teshuvah that, that penetrated his very essence of his very being it had an effect on the world around him the most profound effect you know, only God can answer that question. Obviously, life and death is in the hands of God. 
you know, it's, it was spiritual. It's not like he did something spiritual. He didn't do anything. He was, right. he was lying in bed and he was just, his whole life was, his whole insides was turning upside down. So what God does and his calculations and, you know, who's deserving, who's not deserving, who, who, whose life is, is, the time is up and whose life isn't and, I mean, who, who, who understands these mysteries? But, here he's just bringing out the aspect that you see whatever happens in the world is a reflect what's going on inside of us. And his whole insides was turned upside down. And he reached such a profound level of teshuva, even greater than the usual level of teshuva, which is the love, the teshuva of love, it, it totally transformed, physically changed his whole reality. His whole reality physically changed. Created a whole new reality. But this is the, it's interesting, we're learning about Shuva now in the month of Elul. Now is it the season. This is the season of the Shuva. To be continued next week. This class is part of the Lessons in Tanya project. More classes available at LessonsInTanya.com.